Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Alright, welcome everyone to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And speaking of Agora, I know we just plugged her, but I'm going to plug her again, because she's awesome and her podcast is awesome. Heather Tasco, Renaissance English History Podcast. Go get your tutors on. It's a great time. You know where to find it. And then, you know, other two things. We just actually got a bunch of reviews when we begged for reviews and said that we read them. So, hey, we read them. Thank you for everyone who put up a bunch of reviews. This is great. Everyone who was thinking like, oh, wow, they read them. Like, maybe I'll get around to it. Go do it because it's so cool. It's fun to watch. Thank you. And for those of you particularly excited that have been listening for a long time, you know where to find us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash reconsider. A buck a show. And we actually got a few new patrons on that level as well. So thank you all for joining us. Now, on to the show. Last time we promised you that we were going to talk about some Chinese history and finance stuff. And we lied to you because the Iranian sanctions just dropped and we just couldn't help ourselves talking about it. Uh, You know, it was big news last week and we want to dive further into it because, you know, it's on people's minds. And... To some extent, a lot of people are freaking out. Is it another one of the World War Three things? And by the way, everyone, I, I'm i starting to set up a tracker for for when Twitter starts talking about World War Three and just see the spikes. And I'm just going to count how many times they predict World War Three and see how many times they're right. But Forbes is, it's not just Twitter. Forbes is even asking, quote, is the United States going to war with Iran? Turns out it's a little clickbaity. It's not a yes. It's a, you know, these would the the conditions under which they might, etc. But we're going to talk about what's really going on today, what some of the strategy is behind it, what some of the impacts are. And before we get into the impacts of the sanctions and everyone's reactions, we need to go back in time to a simpler, a simpler year, 2015, when everything was peaceful and harmonious. When there were no wars. When there were no <laughs> Everyone <laughs> held hands and conducted free trade with each other. Yes. 2015, clearly. So we're just going to do a little brief background on the nuclear deal, which has effectively been killed. I say effectively, I'll get into that. But we do cover this in a little bit more detail in some of our prior episodes. I think one was sort of a, a double take half North Korea, half Iran that we did maybe in October last year or something like that. Oh, yeah, there was that one. And then we also did the world tour recently where we talked about the protests that were going on in Iran in like June. So we'll we'll do a brief recap, but there's more content there if you wish to seek it out. So the JCPOA, the quote unquote nuclear deal, the full name stands for Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That was the deal signed in 2015 between the United States and Iran, which lifted a number of sanctions that had been in place for a number of years. But important to note, it did not lift all sanctions. The U.S., for example, kept sanctions in place that were related to Iran's ballistic missile programs. Specifically, the JCPOA dealt with Iran's nuclear program, its uranium enrichment program. And ever since former President Ahmadinejad came to power in 2005 and sort of restarted Iran's 
Uranium Enrichment Program, both the U.S. and the U.N., so it was a collective effort, began placing more and more sanctions on Iran. And this sort of peaked in, in 2010 with a big set of sanctions that were passed by U.S. Congress. I'd like to note before we move on that joint comprehensive plan of action is the single vaguest thing you could possibly call it, right? If I said like, oh, yes, Ford Motor Company this year came out with their joint comprehensive plan of action, you'd go like, okay, there's some corporate buzz speak. That's fine. It could be anything. It could be anything at all. But it is the deal to try to get Iran to stop making nuclear weapons. Indeed. JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, is just a great diplomatic name for some sort of deal, right? And what was in that deal, Xander? Effectively, it was a trade. The deal was Iran would stop enriching uranium for a while. It was 10 years. And and in exchange... Iran would be able to export more products again, especially oil and and other petroleum products, and it would be able to access international capital markets again, which it had been blocked off from. And this included about $100 billion worth of foreign-held assets that at the time were frozen, and they became no longer frozen. That's a lot of money, right? So that was actually one of the big complaints of people who opposed the deal in 2015. They said that Right off the bat, this $100 billion was just, it was giving too much moolah to the mullahs. You're welcome. <laughs> You're so creative. So creative. I'm the best. Ha ha ha. Oh, boy. And so amid this criticism, Trump on the campaign trail, he did not, this was not the deal to which he said, this is the worst trade deal in the history of trade deals, maybe ever. But he did make it clear that he didn't like the deal. It was a, it was a bad deal. A bad deal. And, and the world was laughing at us. I, you know, he says these things. And I'm just quoting him. So essentially he said, you know what, let's kill this deal. Although he didn't technically just waive the suspension of sanctions. Sometimes details don't matter that much. But the big picture is that he, as the president, had the power to do this without the approval of Congress. Part of the reason for this was that the snapback clause in the JCPOA was designed to be able to snap back quickly so that if, you know, essentially any of the leaders of the, the free world that put these sanctions or that lifted these sanctions, any of them could say, look, Iran is clearly breaking this. We don't need to go through a whole legislative procedure about it. Iran can't sort of hide behind inertia and bureaucracy. We can just snap them back. And this was one of the arguments in favor of the deal was that you could undo it pretty quickly. It's not too much of a commitment. And it's also important to note technically that Iran did not violate the terms of the deal as far as anyone knows. And at least according to the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA inspectors that were in charge of validating the deal and doing some inspections. If you read some of the criticisms of the deal, there was there was criticism that the IAEA did not have enough access, but there's no evidence anyone has that, you know, Rand's building nukes again. So that wasn't the reason. Trump's justification at the time when he announced it in May was that Iran was being aggressive and carrying out its ballistic missile program. But recall that there are already different sanctions for the ballistic missile program and the sanctions here that were lifted by the JCPOA were not related to Iran's ballistic missile program, only its nuclear program. So the fact that he pulled out, even though Iran didn't break its end of the bargain, has been used as a rallying cry for those claiming that the United States is violating its obligations, that Trump is rationally doing whatever he wants, possibly just undoing everything Obama did because Obama did it. He's threatening a renuclearized Iran. He's hurting the United States' reputation. And we'll come back to these narratives below. So what are the impact of the sanctions that are going to be reapplied to Iran? Well, first, it's important to note that there has already been one round of sanction and there's going to be another. The first one went into effect last week on August 7th. And this reimposed restrictions on things like the trade in gold and precious metal. And at first, you know, you might say gold, like, why does that really matter that much? And it, it actually does kind of matter because the Iranian currency, the real is very, very cheap. So holding foreign reserves, which includes gold, is sort of like a hedge against the currency depreciating too much. So 
reimpose restrictions on gold and precious metals, on the sale of vehicle and aircraft parts to Iran, and stuff like that. The second phase, which is really the more, it will be the more impactful one, will restrict Iran's oil and petroleum exports. And these are scheduled to come back online in November. Now, in addition to all this, Iran will also face restrictions once again towards accessing international capital markets. Maybe some of its foreign health assets, again, will be frozen. Maybe different international banks won't want to work with Iran because they will face secondary sanctions. And this is another very important point. Secondary sanctions, all that means is if other countries don't comply with the U.S. sanctions against Iran, then those other countries will also be hit by sanctions. And one example of this will particularly affect banks because a lot of foreign banks rely on the dollar for carrying out different types of transactions. So India is a great example of this. India actually buys a lot of oil from Iran. I think Iran is the second largest source of oil imports for India. Wow. Yeah, it's something like 650,000 barrels a day, I think. You read too much about this. Uh, Yeah, it's almost as if it's my job. Almost. Almost. So the thing with India is India basically said, ah, no, we're not going to comply with these sanctions. We need that oil. It is an important source of energy for us. And the Central Bank of India even while the government was saying that, started putting out like advisories saying, you know, these are the challenges that banking, the the banking system in India will face if it does not comply with the sanctions. And now it seems like there's some sort of waiver that the U.S. will permit for India because India is an important security ally for the U.S. as it relates to China and the, and the Pacific. But the point is it got complicated. And even within in individual countries, you had different entities saying different things about whether they wanted to comply or not. And that just illustrates how complicated these secondary sanctions can get. So in Iran, what's happening? Well, a whole bunch of like multinational megacorps that were really excited to do business in Iran because they like money, such as Daimler, Siemens and Total are abandoning their expansion plans in Iran. Uh, China and Russia, who arguably like Iran a lot better than almost anyone else, They've actually had to delay oil field deals in Iran, even though they super don't want to, because the banking sector is in total mayhem. And a U.S. official claimed that over 100 such major corporations announced that they were leaving the Iranian market. In the past few days, the real has dropped 20 percent, making its drop in value over the last year a whopping 80 percent. So real buys you a fifth what it did a year ago. It is sudden and it's traumatic. And unlike, say, China, Iran needs to import a whole lot of finished goods. So losing this buying power is pretty killer. So they're going to be cut off from imports and the ones that they're not cut off from, it's going to be harder for them to buy. The way that the governments try to deal with this leading up to it is they hoarded foreign currency. They rushed in some imports and they cut off other imports uh, to try to weather the sanctions. And once again, protests have popped up across the country because of these economic woes. And citizens in Iran are buying gold because they know that the real will continue to drop. So they're trying to weather the storm. How does Europe feel about this? Well, they ain't happy. They're losing out on a lot of business. But what they're at least saying is that not only are they, quote, determined to protect European economic operators engaged in legitimate business with Iran, but that they want to uphold the deal as a whole. It's important to them. They see the deal as net positive and they see it, uh, at least in the war of words, they're saying it's important that the Europeans and the Americans hold up their you know, obligations and their, their promises. Now, the, the question arises, does Europe actually have the power to do anything about it? Or would the secondary sanctions that the US potentially impose on Europe be so crippling that it's just not worth it to keep dealing with Iran, right? If you're Germany, what do you prefer to establish and maintain business ties with Iran or the US, which is your largest export market? So those are some of the things that Europe's facing. Now, recently, the EU said they're going to be using, I think it was like a blocking clause or some sort of like obscure regulation from the 1990s to basically fight back against the US sanctions. 
And the whole thing reveals sort of how weak the EU really is internally right now, because basically the rule says if a European country leaves or complies with U.S. sanctions, they will be penalized. Now, if a European country decides to just close down operations in Iran for business reasons, that's fine, but they have to prove that. And if they withdraw because of the U.S. sanctions, then they're violating this clause and they're going to be penalized. So they're kind of like forcing their hands. But here's the kicker. The EU has no enforcement mechanism. So the individual sovereign nation states, the member states of the EU, would be responsible for penalizing their own companies. So, so why would they do that? Why would Belgium or Germany or, or France purposefully penalize their own companies and risk damaging their own somewhat meager economic growth? And that's kind of how Europe's been able to fight back so far, quote unquote, fight back. Yeah. Well, on the other side of it is I can imagine being a corporate lawyer for any of these multinationals. And if my country in a sense of like some sort of European patriotism or, or whatever principle said, well, you, you left because you're complying with U.S. sanctions. I would say, look, dude, China and Russia are pulling out, not because they want to comply with U.S. sanctions, but because it's such a disaster, it doesn't make sense to do business there anymore. And so, you know, they get to hide behind the I mean, some of its reality. Right. That's why China and Russia are, are you know, stopping certain plans. But even if it was to comply with U.S. sanctions in order to keep U.S. trade, it's just as defensible to say, look, the economy is going into shambles. There's no business here. Right. So it's I imagine it would be very hard to prove even if people wanted to go after. Yeah, it. exactly. Now, Iran itself, Iran's freaking out. Why are they freaking out? I mean, Iran's dealt with sanctions before. Right. And the regime didn't collapse. So what's different this time? And just as a note, we'll cover this briefly here, but if you want more detail as to how the Iranian economy may or may not be able to withstand the sanctions this time and how it's different than it was last time, check out a piece I wrote recently for Geopolitical Futures. We'll link up below. It'll have a lot more detail on this. And while I'm at it, shameless plug, if you like this sort of stuff, consider a Geopolitical Futures subscription. We're very reasonably priced. You'll get to read a lot more from me and a number of my brilliant colleagues. So Iran is, in fact, freaking out. And part of the reason for this is that today, Rouhani, who is the president and a quote-unquote reformist in sort of the two factions, if you want to call it that, within the Iranian government, the hardliners and the conservatives and the reformists are basically your two camps. Rouhani came to power in 2013 and essentially staked his presidency on lessening the burdens from the sanctions and drawing somewhat closer to the West in order to do so. As it turns out, it didn't really work. The sanctions were lifted and Iran's GDP grew, but almost all of that growth was fueled by oil and petroleum products and natural gas exports. These revenues accrued to a, a fairly small segment of the Iranian society, especially the intelligence apparatus, like the Revolutionary Guards, because in Iran, the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, actually controls a very large portion of the Iranian economy. And some other ruling elites benefited from this too. So even when the sanctions were lifted, when everything looked about as rosy as it could possibly be, the Iranian citizenry got pretty upset because they saw all this additional money flowing into Iran but kind of passing right over their heads into the hands of these already wealthy organizations that were the government and very political and not into the citizens' pockets. And guess what Iran used all that money for? They used that money to get engaged in foreign wars in the Middle East, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, to a lesser degree in Afghanistan, which, of course, is, you know, South Asia and not the Middle East. And so the Iranians are sitting there going, well, we just lifted, got these sanctions lifted with the promise that our lives would get better. But now we're just involved in more foreign wars and sending our people to die and throwing money to essentially catch fire over there. And so, you know, note that Trump announced the sanctions being lifted in May, but it was these large scale protests erupted at the end of 2017. So six, seven months beforehand lasted through January. And it was about the fact that the economic you know, situation was not 
working for them, even though the sanctions lifted, right? They weren't getting what they were promised. And this protest was substantially different from the prior ones, like the so-called Green Revolution in 2009, nothing to do with the environment, everything to do with a political party. It's different because at the time in 2009, the protests were on you know, principle. It was about freedom. And it was. It was about freedom, right? Uh, but it just always sounds funny hearing Americans say freedom because yeah. it's, yeah. So, but those protests in 2009 were primarily among students and other, you know, middle and upper class people who kind of had the time and the, the freedom of access to be able to go do this. And the protests in 2017, 2018 included a much larger socioeconomic group in multiple classes and a much wider geographical base. So rather than just in Tehran and other mega cosmopolitan centers, it's been everywhere. And so it's a much more, you know, wide base, big umbrella kind of protest. Right. So the protests that occurred end of 2017, early 2018 were, were different than the ones in 2009, but because they involved such a variety of socioeconomic classes, they were, in that sense, notably similar to the large-scale uprisings in 1978, 1979, which eventually brought the current regime to power in that revolution. They were much smaller in total size, but they involved more people, and they were throughout the country and not just focused in Tehran. And, And I wrote another piece, a bit of a longer piece, that compared and contrasted the 2018 protests with those from 09 and 1979 at Geopolitical Futures as well. Be in the show notes if you want to check it out. Now, those large protests kind of died down in January, but only in scale because protests have continued throughout the country since then and have gone on to include everyone from students to farmers who are actually reeling from a fairly serious drought right now that's making it increasingly difficult for, for them to sell crops driving them into different types of jobs that they don't really want. And all of this coincided and was accompanied with a drastic decline in the real, which is Iran's currency, uh, which is making it a lot more difficult for people to buy stuff, especially imports. And again, they started happening well before Trump uh, announced the, uh, the renewal of sanctions. So Iran imports a lot of stuff important to the farming sector, for example, such as feed and grain for livestock. So the following real is making it more difficult to buy not only hard assets such as cars, but also food, right? And when people are hungry, bad things happen. And so this is how you're getting chants in these protests, such as death to Syria, death to Palestine, death to inflation, death to the dictator, all part of Iran's brand new hot album about why the Middle East is bad, as opposed to all the old records that were playing on repeat for 40 years about death to America, death to the imperialists, death to the great Satan, right? Many protests are blaming the regime for their woes. The regime has, you know, spent decades trying to indoctrinate people that the United States was responsible for everything bad in Iran and the world. But now it's not working, right? Even though the United States is the actor that brought these sanctions back, these protests are still aimed against the government. And so Rouhani is in a tough place, right? Normally, you'd expect him to get some sympathy. You'd get some solidarity. You get the Iranians getting together and saying, ah, these American imperialists are at their capitalist pig dog ways once again. And now we're going to support you more than ever to stand up and fight back for the proud you know, Persian people. But it ain't happening. So Rouhani's in this tough place. And now the hardliners, that right wing, who were skeptical of the nuclear deal in the first place, are beginning to jockey for greater power within the government. I'm going to start a band called Capitalist Pig Dogs. Capitalist Pig Dog. I, yes. I don't know exactly what kind of music it would be, but it... Oh, it would have to be like really crappy 90s, like anarchist punk. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Or like Dead Kennedys or the Ramones. And if you like either of those bands, I'm sorry. Not that and I'm not apologizing. I'm just sorry of bad taste in music. <laughs> But it's it would have to be that kind of stuff. Right. Where, where instead of playing the guitar, you just kind of like punch it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and <laughs> you your mic costs or sorry your amplifier costs eight dollars and just goes <laughs> all the time it's 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 an aesthetic that just really appeals to my ears yeah. now why why reimpose these sanctions at all right what's what's the plan here there's some important context that we need to cover to to be able to place these sanctions in a broader view hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Look back to last year. As of mid-2017, Iran was looking increasingly ascendant in the Middle East. It's effective client, Assad, in Syria was winning the Syrian civil war, was turning in his, his favor. Saudi Arabia was embroiled in a civil war in Yemen, which is on Saudi Arabia's southern border, fighting Iranian proxies, the Houthis. And the Houthis, known for their album, uh, what is it? Their flag says, God is great, death to America, Death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. If there's a face only a weird jihadist mother could love. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep your slogans to just a couple of syllables. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine them actually taking over Yemen and be like, this is our flag now. Hello, international community. Embrace us. I wish them. And I don't wish them all the yeah, luck, okay. but. You know, it'd be it'd be interesting to watch. Anyway, Houthi digression done. Other than the Iranians are funding them and making Saudi Arabia's life pretty miserable with that. Xander. Sure. And what I mean, one way I can piggyback off that thought is that with the war in Yemen, the civil war in Yemen, Iran doesn't actually need to win. The Houthis don't need to conquer Yemen to further Iranian goals. They just need to keep Saudi Arabia embroiled in the war expending resources and lives because so long as there is a threat from Iran on its southern border, it has to do something about it. So that's going on in Yemen. And then there are a bunch of pro-Iranian militias in Iraq that are quite powerful. They're not completely in control of the country, but the leader of a pro-Iranian militia in Iraq basically just won second place in the Iraqi parliamentary elections in May. So they wield substantial power. And, if, and of course, Iran's in Lebanon as well. So you look at all this on a map and you're like, oh, wow, it kind of looks like Iran's going to be able to like establish this, this famous purported land bridge from Iran all the way to the Mediterranean. Everyone's on their heels and they just don't know really what to do with Iran. It looks like they're taking over the Middle East. And of course, this came in the wake of the JCPOA and receiving a bunch of money. So it looked like Iran was using all this money that it had received from the alleviation of oil sanctions to basically establish itself as a regional hegemon. Yes, remember in specific that so much of that money was not going into the country generally and getting taxed into the government. It was going directly to the Revolutionary Guard. And guess what they do? They guard the revolution. And the best defense is a good offense. Allah Akbar, let's go to Syria. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's right. And the IRHC has an expeditionary arm called the Quds Forces, which I'm probably mispronouncing, Q-U-D-S. And they directly control, in a lot of cases, the these militias in Syria and Iraq. Sometimes the command and control structure actually reports directly to this expeditionary arm of the IRGC. Sometimes. Now, at that time, the U.S. really didn't have a plan for dealing with any of this. 
If you go read foreign policy or international affairs papers from early to mid last year, you'll see a, a sort of common trope. Iran appears to be winning. The U.S. is disengaged from this theater for the most part and doesn't really have a plan. And now all of these areas that the U.S. has been heavily involved with for over the last 17 years uh, appears to be increasingly falling to Iranian influence. So the reimposition of these sanctions are effectively the U.S.'s policy to deal with growing Iranian expansion by placing economic pressure on the regime at home while it's facing growing opposition due to existing economic problems. In other words, there's a logic to it. Regardless of whether or not you think that they're a good or bad idea, you can admit that something is logical without necessarily liking it. And regardless of what you think about the policy, because Trump is in power while it's being implemented, or Obama was in power when the JCPOA was signed. Yeah, I think this is one of those moments that if, if you know, you love Trump, you're going to go like, yep, it was a bad deal. Not sure why, but it was bad. Glad we got rid of it. And if you hate Trump, you're going to go, this must be irrational. And if there's any logic to it, it must purely be coincidental and, you know, bad luck or good luck, depending on how you're looking at it. But, you know, it's typically tough for the United States government to operate purely on whim. But we'll get to that in a second. So the sanctions are back. And what does Trump really want out of it? Right. Someone goes, oh, World War Three. And, you know, unclear why that would be the case. Right. Because what's Trump getting out of this? What's just what he wants? So there's massive pressure on Iran's internal regime and a huge loss of money going to the arms of the government that were funding these overseas wars. This is combined with increased pressure from Israel on Iran's presence in southern Syria. And so what's the aim of this? Well, it's to push Iran back into its own borders and limit its ability to project power into the Middle East and create a you know, hegemony in the region. Given that you know Iran is a declared since 1979 enemy of the United States and death to America and all that, right? Don't want them getting too powerful. And also, Trump has reached out the olive branch, the pipe of peace, and said, you know, hey, let's talk anytime, anywhere, no preconditions, whatever you want. So what happens is Trump looks kind of reasonable. He says, let's make a new deal, a better deal. Maybe it's not even your fault. It's Obama's fault. You made a bad deal. But what he's done is that he's put Iran in a really tough position where sort of day by day, Iran's life gets worse. And Trump is the only person that can make it better. Right. Because Trump can unilaterally take this away, he can give it back and nobody else can do it. Only Trump can do it right now. So it's it's a really if you think of it from a pure bargaining strategy position, it's incredibly powerful where you put someone in an agonizing position where, you know, there's urgency for them to act, urgency for them to strike the deal that you want and you lack that urgency. You can sit back and watch them squirm all day and it's win win. So if it was planned in this way, if this is the intent and, you know, we're not inside the guy's mind, but if this is the intent, it's a move that really puts Trump and the United States in a position to meet those aims of getting a better deal and bottling around up out of the Middle East. Yeah. And one thing I'll add here, because I think it's it's an opportunity to say something about how complex systems work. Right. You mentioned we can't get into Trump's head. Clearly, that is true. However, just because we can't read one leader's mind doesn't mean that we can't understand what a national interest is. We, Trump is not solely responsible for all American policy, even though he may be able to unilaterally reimpose the waiver of sanctions in this case. There's a lot of different actors here influencing other actors. And from, in part, looking at the geography and you know the relations between countries, we can still get a sense of what the U.S.'s national interests are, what Iran's national interests are without reading minds. And I just think that's a point worth making. So in the case of Iran. Yeah. What's their situation? Well, we know they're in a predicament, right? Because these sanctions are particularly painful economically and come at the heels of protests that have already been happening. 
and sort of are the are yet another nail in the coffin of Rouhani's promise to improve the lives of the regular Persian by lifting sanctions. And right now, Rouhani is Rouhani is not reaching out his hand to speak with Trump. He's pushing back and saying, absolutely not. We will not talk. You're unreasonable and you've broken your promise. And there's a there's a war of words and also a threatening of a real war, sort of. So Rouhani said that if Iran cannot export oil through the Strait of Hormuz, which is how Iran gets a lot of its oil out to the world, certainly all of it by sea. So if it cannot get oil out through the Strait of Hormuz, then no one gets to put oil out through the Strait of Hormuz. So here's Iran trying to gain some leverage. So this is a threat to blockade the Strait of Hormuz. And the Revolutionary Guards on the hardliner side of things said, um, where Rouhani is on the reformist faction, backed up Rouhani's threat here, saying, yeah, it's a great idea. We'll definitely blockade the Strait. So Rouhani is not only trying to create some leverage for himself, but also heal some heal the ties with the right wing that's upset with them right now and get them on his side as opposed to fighting him internally. Because sort of the last thing he needs right now is even more opposition at home. Right. And this message was just a veiled way to say to the U.S., you know, if you block us from exporting, we're going to limit enough supply of oil to the global market to drive oil prices up. And if oil prices go way, way, way up, that can threaten the U.S. economy in theory, right? Now, a couple of days after that, uh, Iran carried out a fairly large-scale naval drill in the area of the Strait of Hormuz just a couple of days before the first phase of the sanctions came back on, as though you know, to say, oh, we're serious about this threat. But as always, we need to be really cautious about what people, especially leaders of countries, say relative to what they're actually able to do. The U- There's basically two ways that Iran could block the straits, either by using its navy, and it doesn't have a lot of you know huge boats. They're kind of smaller vessels that can move quickly but don't have a whole lot of firepower, or they can mine the straits. The U.S. has very substantial demining capabilities, and Iran's navy just could not stand a chance if the U.S. were actually to move to unblock a naval blockade. So, so although the certainty during this period would very likely drive up oil prices because, you know, what's going on in the Strait? They can't get oil out for now. The U.S. would be able to lift the blockade unless Russia and Saudi Arabia could temporarily increase their production of oil sufficiently to offset the decline in oil coming through the Strait of Hormuz. But as it turns out, neither Saudi Arabia nor Russia have sufficient excess production capacity, which just means producing more than they currently are, to offset a complete blockage of oil coming through the strait. I think it's something like 18 to 20 million barrels a day move through the Strait of Hormuz. And Saudi Arabia has something like 2 million or so, probably less of spare, 2 million barrels a day of spare uh, capacity in Russia's, even less than that. So where are we right now? Trump, a couple of days ago, actually at this point, uh, over a week ago, said he would be willing to meet with Iranian leaders with no preconditions. And Rouhani basically came back out and said, no, 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 we refuse to talk to the United States until they come back into the deal, uh, regardless of whether or not Trump would be willing to meet with us. Yep. So again, in, in this kind of situation, the criticism that Trump gets is that he's a bully. He doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. So it hurts U.S. credibility, in particular in Iran. And you might think that, again, this would create a backlash in Iran against the United States and a popular groundswell of like, all right, let's get those guys for reimposing those sanctions. But it didn't happen. So there's a New York Times article we're posting where they went around interviewing people in Tehran and everyone said, I don't understand why Rouhani is not talking to Trump. Like, why, you know, is he just proud? Is he just, is it his ego in the way? Like, why is he being obstinate when he needs to talk to this guy in order to make our economic lives better. Does he even care? And this is interesting in particular because, again, Iranians are propagandized from a very early age that the U.S. is evil slash imperialist slash the great Satan. And Iran has relied so long 
you know, it's for its entire revolutionary national existence has relied so much on having this perception of an external existential threat in order to create unity in the country and against what our instincts would say from this kind of behavior by the Americans, that solidarity is not, you know, crystallizing. It's in fact falling apart. So as the Iranians chant death to the dictator, and they're not talking about Trump, Rahani is sitting in Tehran watching the real plummet and Probably part of him realizes that time is much more on Trump's side than Rahani's. And if there's one thing we know about Trump, it's that he doesn't feel like he needs to be seen as the nice guy. And so those are the situations that, you know, the two players here are in and, and the at least national level logic of what each of them is trying to do and why, you know, and, and what's what's at stake. And so contrast this, of course, here's the reconsider takeaway. Contrast this to the way that the issue has largely been covered in popular media and social media, right? The conservatives. Yep. The deal was terrible, especially because Obama made it. It must be bad and screw around. They're evil. We need a better deal with them. If any at all, Obama went way too easy on them, you know, during his apology tour liberals, Trump's a maniac, you know, sort of everything he does must be bad and, and must be irrational and maniacal. It's going to lead to a nuclearized Iran sooner. It's going to destabilize the Middle East, might lead to war, and it's going to make the world question U.S. commitments and credibility. Is there truth to be found in both of these statements or neither of these statements? I'm not, I'm not saying there is. I'm just asking a question. There's, a, there's an author named Dan Dennett who wrote a book called Intuition Pumps, and the whole point of the book was were exercises to help you sort of radically reframe an issue that maybe you've become burnt out on and see it from a new way. And I think, and one thing that I think can help people reframe this issue a little bit is let's look at this deal. Consider the sanctions, consider the nuclear deal in a world where neither President Trump nor President Obama existed. There are different people and you don't know who they are. In that case, in that hypothetical scenario, is there logic in trying to push back on Iran, expanding throughout the Middle East, using economic sanctions. Are there benefits to be had for keeping them away from the border with Israel and Syria and minimizing the chance of interstate war between the two? What were to happen if Iran were to conquer or exert substantial influence throughout the Middle East and essentially be able to marshal the resources of a much larger area and then use those resources to begin to challenge countries outside of the Middle East? Is this something that could have happened based on where we were last year, two years ago. That's the question to ask yourself. So here's another thing. Here, here's something that I, I don't have a firm answer about so far, in part because details on Iran's finances are hard to come by, especially when it has to do with security issues. But given that the regime is essentially caught between a rock and a hard place right now, right? If you look at their budget, was that a pun? <laughs> you know, I actually didn't think of it about it that way, but. Oh, caught between a rock and a hard place. I bet someone did that before during the Bush years and I'm just being reminded of it. But anyway, that was awesome. Continue. I'm here all day. <laughs> <laughs> Iran is struggling because on the one hand, they're facing this internal opposition saying you're spending too much money abroad. And on the other hand, you know, they basically have to either spend more money at home or keep spending money abroad to maintain their position there. And if you look at the protests late December, early January this year, they actually forced the regime to um, keep some subsidies that they were originally planning to eliminate in exchange for supporting their defense expenditures. So it was basically people saying, no, you're spending too much money on these foreign adventures, you want you to spend more money at home. So they had to rebalance that budget. So given the state of affairs where they're really strapped for cash and they're beginning to get to the point where maybe they don't have enough money to support everything they're doing abroad while maintaining stability at home, how much money does Iran have left over to restart and re-energize, if you will, its nuclear program? Oh, interesting. While yeah. also maintaining its position in the near abroad and spending enough money at home to keep the security forces on its side to protect it from the protesters 
and then increase domestic investment in order to spur economic activity. I don't know. I don't know how much their nuclear program costs, but one of the arguments is, oh, you end this deal, the nuclear program rolls back on, we have a nuclear Iran, we have a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, boom, end of deal. I'm not saying you're not going to have a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. I think you might see that regardless of what happens with Iran in the next 30 years, but does Iran even have enough money? I don't know. That's not ever something that's discussed in detail in the common narratives that we hear in the media. Mm. By the way, when you said intuition pumps, I do first want to say that I think Daniel Dennett is one of the great thinkers of our time and is a, like epistemologist of, of unparalleled proportions. However, when he said intuition pumps, I just thought of high heels. And now I'm thinking of some like, you know, women's clothing brand intuition, you know, by reconsider. Uh, I was going to say by reconsider. Oh yeah. Intuition by reconsider by our pumps. So maybe that'll be our next fundraising push as we make some branded women's clothing. We're, Let's not we're diversifying. <laughs> we're, we're diversifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, What's a, what's a closing thought? My big thing on this is, is that we also need to think about, so, you know, obviously in, in this show where we're making the case that there is a logic to this, which risks telling you what to think. We're not necessarily saying it's the right move, but that it's a logical move. And we should judge the policy based on the national interest, the intended outcome and the likeliness of the outcome and the associated costs. And I just want to go briefly over the associated costs, right? Because yeah, there's going to be some, there's going to be a bit of economic cost for us. Like Boeing was going to sell a bunch of planes that I can't sell now. Right. So there's, there's economic costs in the United States for not trading with the run. Mm-hmm. And we also do need to think about that question that people bring up, which is how much does this move cost or not cost the United States in its credibility in the future and friction with allies, right? Because the United States said, look, we have a deal. As long as you don't do X, we're not going to sanction you. And then we said, you know what? Never mind. Don't want that deal. Totally going to sanction you anyway. And even though there's business logic for it, there is, you know, there is a value to credibility because if you're, if you have zero credibility, nobody will ever make a deal with you. Because why would they? They know you're going to go back on it the moment it's convenient. So certainly the U.S. does need to think about credibility as a, as a resource that it has to work to build up. And if it's going to spend against it and hurt its own credibility, it needs to care. However, from the other perspective, the U.S. really often goes its own way, right? I wouldn't say the U.S. has ever been like the, the most multilateral, participatory, democratic partner with our allies. We tend to say how it's going to be, and people sort of either get on board or they stand on the sidelines. And so there is there is an argument that at some point U.S. allies will get fed up with that behavior, but there's another argument that is more kind of like realist in the, the foreign policy school of thought sense that, you know, as long as the United States is sufficiently powerful and subsidizing the security of its allies and is like the main bulwark against countries like Russia, such that the, you know, the idea of Russia actually invading all of Europe is pretty silly right now because of the United States, right? So because of this position the United States has as the security provider to its allies, the argument goes, yeah, those allies are going to gripe. They want the U.S. to act differently. They want to pressure the U.S. to act differently, but they're not going to break away. Now, Will America's enemies stop making deals with it or it's, you know, it's, it's rivals maybe, but for the, for the allies themselves, there's nowhere safe for them to go if they were to leave the United States. And you certainly, uh, if you're a realist, you certainly don't want Europe starting to argue amongst itself over who's in charge of Europe now, right? You know, who's going to be the new big leader if the United States is not doing it because If you've read any history of Europe in the last 2000 years, it's a very bloody series of arguments over who's going to be the big dog. And so to some extent, you know, there's enough historical context in the minds of leaders that even though Angela Merkel will say, you know, 
the United States. He's no longer the leader of the free world. By the way, it's probably me. I'm awesome. Go Germany, right? Uh, the Even though she might say that, she's probably clever enough to not want to start a debate in Europe over whether one of them should be the leader of the free world. So that's a very long way of saying Europe has very limited options in whether it decides to, you know, stay in bed with the United States or not. And that geopolitical argument, you know, applies to reasoning out what is the actual total cost of the United States loss of credibility in pulling out of a deal that it made. And with that folks, that's the Iran deal, the sanctions, and what's going on right now. And we gave you some things to look for. Remember, the second round goes back on in November. So we have a time period where things are theoretically flexible. Wonder what's going to happen. And with that, dear listeners, remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. I'm Xander. <laughs> Signing off. <laughs> I'm Xander, I'm out. <laughs> You're not Xander, I'm Xander. No, I'm I'm Xander now. Alright, this is I now I actually am Eric. Goodbye everyone. I'm signing off. Talk to you soon. Hopefully about China again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.